I was dumped, like dumped by a girl a few years back. You know, being dumped in college or high school, just a little word to the college and high school students out there, you know, in hindsight, it, it can be a, uh, a, a blessing. You know, it grows your character, it, it, it strengthens you, and like in my case, it opens the doors to better opportunities. But right in the moment, it doesn't feel so hot. And I had been dumped by this girl in college, and I had not seen her in almost a year, and I found out that she was coming back to town, back to Southern. Now, I had no expectations of, of, of getting back together, but I did want to see her, and I, you kind of have that thing, I kind of have that hope that there would be some recognition, some acknowledgement that, that, that yes, she had missed me too. I wanted some of that. Well, when I saw her, I was adequately excited to see her, but not over the top. You know, I had to play it cool and be cool about it. But in her reaction, not only was there not any indication of any level of excitement or any level that she had, had missed me, her reaction was as if she had never even known me at all. It had just been some blip out there in the universe. There was this country song that was popular at the time by Colin Ray, and you gotta love country music. Country music is, is so, some of the songs are so uh, woeful and overly dramatic. They just like feed into our morose, you know? And there was this song by Colin Ray at the time called uh, Someone You Used to Know. It is all about this couple and, and how they had this deep and powerful relationship. And the guy has all these memories of, of love and, and good times. And he, him and the girl have gone their separate ways, but, but he sees the girl for the first time and, and after their breakup. And Colin Ray, uh, you know, just, just pitifully sings, but it didn't kill me. In other words, seeing her didn't kill me until we said hello and I became someone you used to know. And after I saw this young lady, I listened to that song maybe more than once. <laughs> and every time it would come to that, that line, oh, the dagger in my heart. I became someone you used to know. You, you acted as if you never knew me at all. Some of you have been there, or you know someone who has. Well, I take that line, I take that emotion, and in my mind, I multiply that by a million, and that is the sorrow I think of when I think about today's passage. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And specifically, in, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, is to me the saddest line in all of Scripture. It is, it is the most... Uh, sorrowful and depressing line in all scripture, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, and Jesus speaks and he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. I never knew you, depart from me. The absolute saddest text in scripture, I never knew you. Y'all, this isn't Jesus saying I never knew you to people that have never accepted him. 
This isn't Jesus saying, I never knew you to people that, that have walked away from him or, or rejected his truth. This isn't Jesus saying, I, I never knew you to people that are living in great sin and debauchery. This is Jesus saying, I never knew you to people like you and like me. People that, that look back and they say, I've had a relationship with Jesus. People that look back and say, I have good memories and, and I remember uh, fond times. I never knew you. Let us take a moment to face this text with the soberness that it deserves. I mean, think about this. We, we've heard preachers, probably if you've grown up in the church, we've heard preachers make comments about, you know what, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised about who's there. You heard preachers say that? Someone's going to be there and you're going to be surprised. Oh, that, how'd that person make it in? And we've heard preachers say, say things like, and, and you're going to be surprised about who isn't there. You know, I thought they were such a good person. How did they not make it? The passage today tells us that there is the potential that some of us will be surprised that we are not there. That is sober. That is, that is intense. Someone you used to know, depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Read in this way, as Michael read it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Jesus is talking about Christians who say the right things, believe the right things, and in all areas seem to do the right things. And I look at this passage with, with even more uh, uh, sobriety as I, as I think about it because Jesus doesn't say there's going to be one or two people that are surprised that they're not there. Jesus doesn't say there's going to be a couple here and there that are surprised. He says, in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me, let us examine this group of surprised believers for a moment. First of all, they address Jesus as Lord, 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 Lord. Paul stated that in order for us to be saved, we must confess with our lips and believe in our hearts and we will be saved. They have that, they have that confession of their, of their mouths down and they are doing this. And this double emphasis, Lord, Lord, which happens twice in the passage in both verse 21 and verse 22. They address him with this double emphasis of Lord, Lord. This is evidence of, of, of sincerity. This is evidence of conviction. This is evidence of, of true belief. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that, that the double emphasis illustrates not just uh, an acquiescence of knowledge of truth, but that they have a level of emotion with their commitment to Christ as well. There's a zeal. Lord, Lord, we would not put these people, we would not put these people in the category of the Laodiceans, the category of the indifferent, the category of the in inactive. These individuals have been a blessing to the world in some capacity. To prophesy means to, to speak forth truth, to speak forth. They preached the truth. They cast out demons. They helped to set people free from the bondage of, of Satan. And they did other mighty works. 
These are probably the type of works, just the way it's described, that, that would move us. If we saw these people, we'd say, man, those, those people are, are committed Christians. But Jesus tells us two other things about these people. He tells us they still haven't done the will of the Father and that their works are works of lawlessness. They haven't done the will of the Father. If, if, if speaking for truth and believing truth is not the will of the Father, then, then what is? If, if helping to set people free is not the will of the Father, then what is? And, it, and, if, and if doing other mighty works on God's behalf is not the will of the Father, what is? And how are they lawless if there's no indication that, that they are not fully committed? That is what I wrestled with when I looked at verse 22. But the answer is actually right there in verse 22. Listen to it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Do you hear the problem in this, in this text? Do you, do you hear the problem in the text? We'll read it again and we'll add some, some points of emphasis. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? When Jesus comes to save us, the basis of salvation, which these people will fall back upon, for which they will say, we deserve salvation, is that they believe the right things, they preach the right things, they witnessed in the right way, they did the right works, they helped set people free, and they failed to realize and they fail to realize that salvation is not a work of theirs, but it is wholly and completely and unconditionally the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. They missed it all. They believed correctly, they preached correctly, they worked correctly, works of righteousness, and they did it all thinking in some way that it would qualify them for the grace and the merits of Jesus. How could this happen? How could this happen? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us something about our great adversary, tells us about our, our great enemy. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that the devil is what? He's a, he's a roaring lion, right? And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that we are to be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary prowls, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking what? whom he may devour. We can read that passage and think only of the, the violent adversary. He, after all, is described as a, as a roaring lion. But don't let the roaring part of the description fool you. Because if, if the devil was really so obvious, if the devil was really so clear in his attacks, why would we need to be watchful and, and sober-minded? The devil gets some people with the, with the roar and with the rage and with the chaos of life. Some of us fall into the, the traps of, the, of, of the, the big pitfalls and the, and, the, and, the, and the struggle and the chaos of life. But the devil gets others of us by, by, by sneaking up on us and, not even real, and we don't even realize he is there till we're in his belly, till we're devoured. Let me just use my own life as, as a bit of a scenario, some true and some hypothetical. As I've shared here, and you know, I used to live quite the wild life and the drugs and all the other nonsense of life. And the devil had me in his grasp. But then I accepted Jesus, and Jesus helped lead me out of those things in my life. 
And for a while after that, the devil still tried to tempt me with some of those things in life. But, but the more I said no, and, and the more often I said no, the more I gained strength against those temptations. So did the devil then say, okay, well, I'm done prowling around Chad. I'm just going to let him be. He's good to go. We'll, we'll mark him as saved, and I'll move on to someone else. Did the devil do that? No, absolutely not. The devil looks at it. He's very clever with his tactics, and he looks at it, and he says, you know what? We're going to have to come around this from another direction. I'm not going to get Chad to drive himself away through the things of his teenage years. So how can I get him? Remember, the devil is a great psychologist. He's a great psychiatrist. Remember, the devil knows the Bible, and he knows what the Bible says about us. He knows what Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 tells us and tells him, that the heart is deceitful above what? All things. The heart is deceitful above all things. And so, so the scenario I can imagine is the devil says, okay, you know what? I'm not going to get him with, with the drugs and with the girls and with those things anymore. I'll let Chad believe the truth. I'll let Chad preach the truth. I'll let Chad do a lot of good things for the truth. Man, I'll even let Chad have a job working for the truth. And I'll encourage his own heart to think that these things are in some small portion saving him. Two American psychologists, I read this in a business book. It's not by any Christian authors, but it was, I think it's an apropos illustration for this. Two American psychologists, Ellen Langer and, and Jane Roth, asked a group of subjects to flip a coin 30 times. So they all came in, they flipped their coin 30 times, and they were to, to predict whether or not the coin would land heads up or tails up. A total thing of chance. They then told each individual, they didn't even pay attention to where the coins actually landed, heads up or tails up, but they told each individual, oh, you got it right 90% of the time. Or they told other people, you got it right 80% of the time. They told other people, man, you only got it right 5% of the time. Or you got it right 50% of the time. No matter what they actually did, no matter how well they actually guessed it, they just gave them a number, either a successful number or a, a low number. Then these subjects were called back in. They were, they were asked to rate what skill they believed they possessed, what talent they possessed on a scale of zero to 10 in predicting the outcome of a coin flip. What gift has God given you to predict the outcome of a coin flip? The subjects that were told they did very well on the coin flip, oh, you got 90% of them right. When they were asked later, do you believe, what is the skill level you believe you possess in predicting the coin flip, oh, you know, I think they, they give themselves like an eight or a nine or a 10. I think I have quite a gift at this. Somehow my eyes are able to read it in the air or something. Those who were given a low score that, hey, you really didn't get it right at all, they were asked, how, how much skill do you have in predicting the coin flip? And, and they said, you know, I, I don't think I have, I was given that skill. The psychologist's conclusion, and this is what they wrote, even in a discipline, where success is completely random. We all understand this, right? That we don't actually, aren't born with a gift of being able to predict a coin flip. I hope someone's not out there thinking, oh, I got that gift. <laughs> Even in a discipline where success is completely random, we tend to believe that our ability caused the success. The heart is deceitful above all things, y'all. 
Langer and Ross stated in their finding, success breeds an illusion of personal control. Success breeds an illusion of personal control. Satan the roaring lion says, they are studying the truth. They are preaching the truth. They are doing good works for God. How can I get them? In their success for God, all allow their own hearts to deceive them by breeding an illusion of personal control. Lord, Lord, hear our sincerity. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we speak the truth on your behalf? Haven't we, haven't we helped set people free from the devil? Aren't we just in general doing good things for you? Aren't we just good people? We did all this, and the devil says, and I have you. I have you. Great classic. I encourage you to read if you haven't read it before. The book Steps to Christ. If you've read it before, read it again. Read it multiple times. It's a great book, and it's an easy read. Page 44, Ellen White wrote this. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely on their own efforts to obey his law, to form a right character and secure salvation. There are those that profess to serve God. Deny, deny, deny. Our good works, because our hearts are deceitful, actually have the potential of producing in us an illusion of control. The devil says, I'll let them be a little successful in this because it may cost them their life. And that's all I care about. Which leads to the saddest words in the Bible. I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus never knew these people because they believed by their right knowledge, by their right witness, by their right actions, that they had some control over their personal destiny, the illusion of personal control through the successes they had. So then how do we avoid this? How do we avoid this? I was a student at Loma Linda Academy. I was in junior high and I liked this girl. And for a very, very brief time, this girl liked me. And then she stopped liking me. And I was upset about this. I was bothered by this. I wanted this girl to like me again. So I began to formulate a plan. How can I get this girl to like me again? And I decided the best method was to just be the nicest guy in the world to her and show her that I was more awesome than any other dude around. And so I began, I just became like her best friend. If she needed to talk about something, I was there for her to, you know, to talk to me about. I'd, I'd, I'd get her things for her birthday and, oh, just friends, but hey, here you go. Uh, here's the thing for your birthday. And, and I would listen to her. I'd, I'd give her notes, you know, to encourage her. There's a whole generation just is missing out on the little notes that we folded and you pull the tab and open them up. I mean, there's a whole generation of that. Amen? Come on. That's a, it's just so sad. It's text messages. That's no fun. Pull, draw little flowers on him. Pull the thing. Uh, whole generation missing out on this. But, but so I'd give these notes and every now and then I would like, you know, what, what if we were to, you know, go out? What if you were to be, oh, Chad, I just like you as my friend. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was just kidding anyways. Ha uh ha. -huh. Well, about a year and a half of doing this, I go to her one day and I say, Jen, she had broken up with a guy a little bit before, and I said, Jen, you know, you know what would you think about going on a, a date with me? And at that age, you know, junior high, that's like tantamount to like, you know, be my girlfriend. And she said, yes. And I said, what? Yes? A, a real date? She said, yes. I said, 
oh, great. I said, I'll, I'll talk to my parents. You know, we didn't drive. I had to figure out a way to, to have them take us somewhere. So I'll talk to my parents, and I'll set up a time when, when they can take us somewhere. And she said, okay. Guess what, y'all? Guess what? We never went on that date. Because here's what I discovered. Well, for a year and a half, I'd been obsessed with working so hard, working so hard to get this girl to like me again. Suddenly when she said yes, I realized I don't even like her. <laughs> True story. I thought I did, but it had been lost in all the good that I've been doing, having the heart engaged. In the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, and I know this is in a lot of wedding bulletins and everything, but it's not even in the context of a wedding. It's in the context of works and doing good works. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is about the spiritual gifts that we possess and how everyone has spiritual gifts and where to use them for the, the building up the body and the, and, and, the, and the growth of the body. And 1 Corinthians 14 is about how we should desire certain spiritual gifts to serve and to please and, and to honor God. And right in the midst of that, right in the midst of that is 1 Corinthians 13, which we know as the love chapter. And God says this to us in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my own body, to be burned at the stake, but have not love. I gain nothing. Nowhere is Jesus condemning anyone for doing good deeds or having the right beliefs or helping set people free from the devil. In our sermon last week, we even just talked about how, how truth matters to Jesus. Truth matters to God, and understanding right truth is a thing we need in our life. But Jesus is telling us that everything is outside of God's will. Everything is lawlessness, even our giving up of our own lives without the correct motivation, love. Without it, I gain nothing. Unconditional, absolute love for Jesus. The statement that I read from Ellen White just a minute ago, there are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey his law, to form a right character and secure salvation. And then here are the very next lines that she writes. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. I believe the right things. I say the right things. I do the right things. Without love, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. An illusion of control. Because, hey, I'm doing it right. And all the while I'm doing it right, my heart forgot what the purpose is, love. It isn't because Jesus doesn't love us. It is because we have an illusion that while we gave him our entire lives, and some of you have literally given your entire lives, your health has been sacrificed for the cause of God. Your, your families have been sacrificed for the cause of God. Your, your, your time is sacrificed for the cause of God. And the one thing he wants is your heart and your love. 
So then what is the call to action out of this text? If the problem is the illusion of control, that somehow we have some, some, some part to play in saving ourselves, if the problem is that our hearts are, are not being invested while everything else in our lives, our money, our time, our energy, our, our words are being invested, but our hearts are not being invested, then the opposite of those things has to be the answer, of those problems has to be the answer. And the opposite of control is surrender. The opposite of control is surrender. It isn't a word we use enough, and it's not a word we like to use with its real and true meaning. And I'm not sure we always even fully understand. I was, I was listening to a, a self-proclaimed Christian tell a story about going on a spiritual retreat, and he was going on this silent retreat with, with his pastor, and he asked the pastor he was with, what, what are we gonna do in the silence? They were gonna spend six hours just in silence. What are we gonna do in the silence? The pastor said, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can, you can journal. And the man, a 26-year-old man raised in the church, uh, and by his words, like I said, a defined, uh, uh, by his own words, a Christian, and, and by the world's definition and standards, we would say a Christian. He asked, what should, I, what should I journal? What should I journal? And the pastor said to him, whatever the Holy Spirit puts on your heart or on your mind. And, and, and he said, yeah, but, but, but I, I still don't know what to do. And he said, well, try this. The pastor said, try this outline. Think about what you want and write it down. I want. Think about what you fear. I fear. And then he said, and then look at it all and say, I surrender. And write out what you surrender. And the young man said to him, his own words, his honest words, what does surrender mean? What does surrender mean? In the Bible, there's a story in the book of 1 Kings about two kings. 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And I think the words of the story actually help us to, to understand what surrender is. And, 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 and the conclusion of the story of the words that I'm going to read to you really need to be the prayer of our hearts every single day. Every single day, and not just in a passing sense, but, but maybe we need to say them out loud and, and cry out to God, God, I, I need to surrender. But in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, the Bible reads in this way. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my Lord, my king, I am yours and all that I have. Y'all, that needs to be our daily statement. As you say, my Lord, O king, all that I am is yours and all that I have is yours. But here's the thing about surrender. It's a choice. It's a choice. The words were penned years ago. How am I to make the surrender of myself to God? And then stated, the power of choice God has given to men, to women. It is theirs to exercise. You, I, you cannot change your heart. You cannot 
of yourself, give to, to God its affections. You can't, folks, you can't make yourself love God more. You can't give him your heart. But you can choose to surrender. You can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He then will work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not want to say to any one of us, depart from me, I never knew you. But the Bible tells us that many will be surprised in that day. And it's not because it was the choice of Jesus. It is because it was our choice. It was our choice to work hard, to speak hard, to have the truth, to know the truth, to, to work for the truth, and to never surrender our hearts. It's our choice. A heart in love with Jesus is the only thing of any gain, and the only way a heart falls in love with Jesus is that you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. So it comes to a choice right now, today, right here. Do we choose to surrender? Not I'll keep doing your work, God. No, no. God, I've been working for you. I've been slaving for you. I've been sacrificing for you. But I got to surrender my heart to you. I've got this sin and I thought I couldn't control it. I've got this anger in me and I thought I could control it. I've got this bitterness in me. I got no, I've got to surrender. I can't change my heart. I can't change my affections. All I can do is make the choice to surrender. My Lord, O King, I am yours, and all that I have is yours.